Will you pray with me? Wonderful God, we come to you this morning. And if our hearts are closed, we pray that you would, in your own way that's so tender and compassionate, help us open them to your word. Illuminate our mind and allow us to take in the truth that you have for us today. We pray these things in your name. Amen. When my son was about two years old, one of his favorite stuffed animals was a Paddington bear. I don't know if you're familiar with that a little guy. Pretty cute. He had The stuffed animal had a real rain hat, a yellow rain hat, and a, the traditional blue overcoat, warm and fuzzy, and it had these wooden buttons that were sewn on the front. It was really a cute toy. Uh, one afternoon, Matthew was sitting on the couch playing with his bear, and his older sister Sarah and I were sitting on the floor playing a card game. And Matthew was just a, about a foot away from me, and you know we were playing right there. And I looked up and I watched Matt for a moment playing, and I saw him pull the button off of his bear. And Sarah saw it too. And I said, baby, why did you pull the button off of your bear? And he looked at me with utter conviction and said, the wind did it. <laughs> My son is 33, and we still, when he tells us something, we say, oh, is that the wind did it? <laughs> Young or old, I think we can all be very creative when it comes to creating a reality that shapes the world to our advantage. And sometimes we'll even believe the reality that others shape for us. Advertiser, advertisers have been making millions, billions, off of their ability to effectively manipulate our reality. Since the first merchant hung out a shingle and said, you need this to be happy, successful, or powerful, it sold everything from chewing gum to deodorant to unmentionables. And the more we immerse ourselves in this false reality, the more we feel pressured to be forever chasing an ideal that really doesn't exist and false promises that cannot be fulfilled. And in some cases, we are so immersed in a false reality that we become a victim of what we know as believing our own press. That means we've lived in a false reality for so long that we no longer have an accurate read of ourselves. I'm a good and wonderful and giving person. How many times have you heard a really mass criminal saying those words? Or, he was a nice neighbor. And this leads to acting with arrogance and confidence and illusion rather than the reality. In today's scripture, we meet Pilate, who I think at many levels was one of the victims of his own press, but he was also held captive by that entrapment. So what happens to Pilate when he encounters Jesus? This Jesus whose reality centers at the heart of the onion 
That means as many layers as he can pull back and get to the heart of what's real finally emerges. Jesus, whose insight into the human condition makes your mask slip just a little until it completely falls away and you're vulnerable in his arms. Listen now to the text this morning, John 18. Then they took Jesus from Caiaphas to Pilate's headquarters. It was early in the morning, and they themselves did not enter the headquarters so as to avoid ritual defilement and be able to eat the Passover. These were the Jewish religious leaders. So Pilate went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered, If this man were not a criminal, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. And the Jews replied, We are not permitted to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill what Jesus had said when he indicated the kind of death he was to die. Then Pilate entered the headquarters again, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you ask this on your own, or did others tell you about me? And Pilate replied, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests have handed you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Pilate asked him again, so you are a king. Jesus answered, well, you say that I am a king, but for this I was born and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. Pilate asked him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went out to the Jews again and told them, I find no case against them. But you have a custom that I release someone for you at the Passover. Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? And they shouted in reply, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a bandit. This is the word of the Lord. So what is Pilate's goal in this trial? And what does Jesus, the one supposedly on trial, have to offer Pilate? Pilate seems to know that Jesus shouldn't be on trial. Obviously, Pilate, who was in charge of maintaining the order, maintaining the Roman rule in Judea, doesn't consider Jesus a threat to that rule. So why does he try Jesus, find no case against him, but continue to have him flogged and hand him over to be crucified. Something strange happens here. Pilate, most likely, has become a victim of his own press a little bit. He considers himself the most powerful, most in control person in Jerusalem. He is the local representative of the greatest power at that time on the face of the earth, the Roman Empire. In his encounter with Jesus, he brags about the position of power he possesses. Later on in chapter 9, he tells Jesus, 
Do you not know that I have the power to release you and the power to crucify you? But Pilate, though supposedly in control, I think, is absolutely trapped in fear. He's caught between a rock and a hard place, so to speak. The Jewish leaders want Jesus crucified, and they've set up this system with Rome of keeping everybody cool, calm, and collected. And in exchange, they're funded and given so many kickbacks and perks. And so it behooves them to work in collaboration with the Romans, but it really behooves the Romans to work in collaboration with the Jews. So he wants to keep them happy. But if Pilate does not give them what they want, will he still be in control? Does he have enough troops to quell the uprising that they could cause among the people, that they could stir up with their accusations, that they do stir up with their accusations? And then how will it play back in Rome if he can't even keep this rabble Together, How will it look in Rome if he can't even handle this crowd? So when Pilate summons Jesus and asks him, are you the king of the Jews? I wonder if that's really his question. Does he truly believe Jesus is an insurrectionist? I wonder that. It feels to me more like he's trying to find a technicality on which to condemn Jesus in order to placate the leaders. Just say it, Jesus. Just say you're the king. Then I can say you're, you're a traitor, and that's treasonous, and we can hang you with good, just cause. Just say it. Is he free or bound in his effort to stay in control? Are we free or bound in our effort to always stay in control? Is that Pilate's real goal, regardless of the cost, to stay in control? His true, and not be able to express his true conviction, his honest questions, or his haunting fears. In that moment, he's not able to say, look, I'm in a tough place here, and you're going to have to help me out. He's not able to, to talk to anybody on his staff and say, this is tricky, I'm not sure what's going to happen here. He's not able to do that because he's trapped into his need to be the one in control. And I think this is a very contemporary fear, to be honest with you. I think that in some, at some level, we all fear this just a little bit. We're fearful of speaking our truth or our reality. I mean, honestly, when you came onto the church campus this morning, perhaps there's one or two of you, I don't know, who someone asked, how are you doing? And you said, fine. And you're not. Or someone said, how, how did it go at the doctor's the other day? Oh, okay. And it's not. Or how's your husband? Oh, great. How's your wife? Fine. And it's not. They're not. We can't even say what's true because of our sense of vulnerability to each other on a Sunday morning sometimes, let alone out in the workplace and 
Sometimes we fear retaliation. In today's age, we fear cyberbullying, positional warfare, meaning take a position and stand in the foxhole until one of you drops. Misplaced disregard for civil conversation. We're afraid to bring up anything. You know, in my world, when you say you can't talk about sex or politics or religion, in my world, that's cutting out anything that's really important. I mean, those are the most intimate, most involved things about our lives. And when you can't talk about those things, you're left with the Dodgers. <laughs> right? And I know nothing about the Dodgers. So we've already cut ourselves off from some kind of meaningful conversation with each other by saying we can't have conversations about those things because we, we can't stand for each other to have a different opinion. And evidence of this captivity is present in the pews of many congregations. Maybe a session meeting where you can't discuss immigration or how to help the immigrants because half of you want to help and half of you don't politically feel it's correct. I mean, isn't that crazy? That we would rely on our politics rather than our gospel for whichever side that is. But we do. In the United States, many mainline churches, many members have every creature comfort that is imaginable. Houses and food, clothes, cars, education, health care. Yet even with all of that, we sometimes don't feel that we can be real at work or in public. What that might mean is that we would reveal who we really are. And maybe somebody won't like who we really are. Maybe they won't agree with us. What we truly believe or what we don't believe. I think some of the most gratifying moments I've had is in my Monday night Bible study. When we're talking about something and somebody is, questions that and says, I'm not sure that I believe that. I'm going to take just a moment to stop right now, and I'm going to ask everyone to please, let's just bow our heads and pray. Thank you, Lisa. Well, needless to say, I'm not going to get up here and carry on as, you know, like nothing just happened. But I will tell Marie that she didn't need to do that to get out of hearing the rest of the sermon. It wasn't going to be that long. Well, it's kind of what we were talking about, I guess, as being real. So why is it so hard for us to be real? I wonder. What are we afraid of? We just saw somebody in their most vulnerable moment. And it was, yes, it was disturbing, and we pray for the safe, the safe and wonderful outcome for Marie. But why does it cause us so much um, discomfort to see vulnerability? I think it's because we protect our own vulnerability so deeply. And what, what are we risking when we're vulnerable? 
Yes, we're risking being hurt. But we're risking also knowing something big and beautiful and wonderful. You know, in that story that we read about um, Pilate, I'm going to be careful about going off script here because I had a preaching professor who once said, just figure out how to land the plane. So the airstrip is not there anymore, so I'm going to be very careful about landing the plane you know, in goodly time. But there was this moment for Pilate that Jesus gave him the opportunity to be vulnerable. I don't know if you caught it in the reading of the story. He said to him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, is that you talking? Or is it somebody else's question? And there's this part of me that wonders if in that moment Jesus said, do it. Let go of all your fear. Let go of everything that you think you are. Understand what, how you're loved. Understand how free you are, even in your vulnerability. Understand that. But he, instead, he dismisses it with, a, you know, what is truth? But Jesus also offers him, and Jesus always offers us the opportunity to be vulnerable. But in order to be vulnerable, we have to let go of the illusion that we have of who we are. And we have to come face to face with who we really are in our most beautiful form. Because I I have no doubt that unless you're a narcissistic male maniac, of which I have actually never personally met somebody who's beyond redemption in those categories, then there is some beautiful part of you. No matter how badly you think you are, there is a beautiful part of you. So in our vulnerability today, as Marie has taught us to be vulnerable, and as we've experienced that uh, incredible opportunity for Jesus to say, just be real. Everybody who's real listens to my voice and they hear me. That's what Jesus says. And they hear me. And after all, I think that that's probably the only reality that's really worth anything is the reality that we are loved and we are seen so tenderly by the eyes of God, this wonderful Savior. Let's go to God in prayer. God, in this moment, our hearts are wrapped and surrounded by the events this morning. And we have seen your hand in the quick response of those who come to help. We have, you have borne testimony to us because the hearts of those who want to help people are touched by you. We know that we are one with you because our hearts are pounding and we are feeling a little vulnerable ourselves. And we pray for Marie as she travels to receive the care that she needs this moment. 
that in that vulnerability, she will have a sense of your presence, a sense of your hope, a sense of the wonderful abiding faithfulness of the God that she has worshipped and loved her whole life long. You are a good and loving God, and we're so grateful. And so we lift these things up to you, O God, and we pray these things in your name. Amen. There's a lot of prayer going to go on this morning, so don't be surprised. (laughs) 